Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the Talkville 21 podcast. It's our first episode of the new year, and we've got quite an interesting array of episodes planned for the coming weeks, on topics ranging from Chinese policy to cyber-authoritarianism and the Ukraine crisis, so stay tuned. Today we turn our focus to East Asian geopolitics and trilateral relations between China, South Korea, and Japan. We sat down with Leo Howard, an IR and history specialist with a focus on East Asia. Mr. Howard is currently a researcher affiliated with the University of Edinburgh, and has previously written for the Japan Times. What follows is our discussion of the foreign relations of Japan, and specifically the relations between China, Japan, and South Korea, starting with an explanation of the recent importance of Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. I hope you enjoy it. First of all, would you like to explain a little bit more about Article 9 specifically, and then how exactly does it fit into the context of China and Taiwan is the first thing that comes to mind, but also North Korea, I suppose. Sure. Article 9, uh, aka the peace clause in, mm. in the forceful Japanese constitution, explicitly forbids Japan from having any sort of armed forces, really, in the military forces. But the case is that Japan has its own self-defense forces, the SDF. One of the main reasons it has this is because of the UN Charter. The UN Charter allows for the self-defense of nations, and there have actually been internal challenges by sort of left-leaning Japanese groups uh, the Supreme Court has numerous times said, because the UN Charter allows for this, then it is legal for the Japanese government or the Japanese state to allow self-defense forces. Under Abe, however, and within the LDP, there are certain factions that feel that the fact that there is a paradox in that there is an SDF, but there is also an Article 9. What Abe was proposing up until the end of his reign was the concept of collective defense. So the idea that if the US were to come to any sort of danger, then Japan would be allowed to join in. But at the moment, it's only allowed to take part in UN action within the UN structure. And you mentioned sort of China, South Korea, etc. I think part of it has to do with the Chinese incursions into the Senkaku Islands, or Diaoyu, the Chinese, and also the South China Sea, China's domination of that area. I think Abe perceived China as a threat to the stability of the area, and this provided the backing to his plans. As to what Suga might do with Article 9, again with COVID, that's sort of put on the back burner. He's made some noises really about maybe sort of revising it and putting it forward to committees, etc., seeing what, what support there is within the party for revising it. But it is a very sensitive issue to the Japanese people. The idea of getting rid of, well, even revising Article 9 would seriously hinder uh, Japan's status as a nation without an army. Not peace-loving, really, but I think Japan without an army sort of as the powerhouse of Asia, but without an aggressiveness, I think. Unlike, say, China, for example. That provides an interesting contrast, because the, the Germans sort of, they faced a similar problem, but they ultimately managed to avoid it by folding themselves into the European Union, among other things, and profiting from this sort of collective defense with NATO. Japan doesn't quite have the same issue. I was really struck specifically by the the, uh, the statements uh, recently by the government that uh, an incursion on Taiwan would be a threat, whether an existential threat to Japan. Is the LDP attempting to get around this idea, uh, or a reform of Article 9 by expanding the idea of what qualifies as self-defense? Or is this a shift in perspective when it comes to China? Is there a view that China is more of a threat than it used to be? 
I think the proximity of Taiwan to Japan geographically is probably what the statement had in mind. Theoretically speaking, if Taiwan were to be taken over by China, that would be a threat to sea lanes, really international sea lanes north of Taiwan. However, I think that's mainly theoretical, really. I, I don't really see as the threat to Taiwan from China in the coming years. It still has to build up its military capacity to reach that point. I mean, the fact that the United States, of course, um, guards Taiwan is a major factor. In terms of Article 9, SDF revision, etc., I mean, it provides another um, reason for revising Article 9, but I think these are sort of short-term concerns, really. Uh, leaders come and go, and ultimately the relations between China and Japan are too uh, precious to be sort of endangered at the moment, economics-wise, speaking of trade relations. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. What do you have to say about the relations between Japan and China? I mean, how, how far about do you want to cover it? Lay, lay it on. <laughs> so at the moment, as is very apparent really with uh, Xi Jinping hmm. and the rise of China military economically, Japan has had to deal with China a bit differently than it had for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, China is now a major power in, the, uh, in Asia. Um, it's able to exert its influence over other nations in various forms, militarily, economically, politically. Mm-hmm. That being said, the issues between Japan and China, I think, are subsumed by economic concerns. There's the history issue, I think. There's the issue of Japan's invasion of China, mm-hmm. the horrific actions of Japan during wartime. While on the surface, China is key to sort of educate its Chinese people on these atrocities, I don't think they allow them to creep into international relations. It's most apparent, really, in the uh, anniversaries, really, of things like the Nanking Massacre. Xi Jinping hasn't really turned up to these events in recent years. And I think that's significant in that he doesn't want to strain relations at a time when America is resurging again our post-Trump, is re-engaging with the international world. China doesn't want to make too many enemies, basically. And so it's focusing pragmatically on keeping Japan, if not on side, on good terms. All right. And this is this has been successful, particularly in the uh, in light of the U.S.-China trade war uh, starting in 2019. Difficult balance to, to strike. It is. on the Touching on the trade wars, Japan faced a delicate balancing act there, really. It didn't want to anger the U.S. and um, not go along with the whole concept of a trade war, really. Hmm. And I think with the departure of Trump, and while there are, of course, still tensions between China and the U.S., overall, I think they've returned to a more stable level. And Japan has managed to reset itself to that. All right. I wanted to ask also, because this isn't the only regional trade issue that Japan is involved mm. in, what exactly has been going on for the past couple of years with Korea? Okay. Korea is a trickier issue, really. because well, I, know, I know there's the same delicate issue of actions during World War II and, and before that have an impact on the existing mm. relationship between South Korea and Japan. But it also, I, I imagine it's, it's, it's also more than that. Of course. I think the way to look at this really is a comparison between China and South Korea, specifically on public opinion. China, as a communist country, really has... It's easier, basically, to control public opinion in China through the various organs, the Chinese uh, state. But in South Korea, the South Korean public um, is very active in uh, politics. Demonstrations are frequently held over the history issue with Japan. And because of the active nature of the, the active nature of South South Korean democracy, 
the South Korean government can't be seen to be too lenient towards Japan. It has to tread a fine line between overall good relations at the same time, not sort of kowtowing. So you have things like the uh, Comfort Woman statue outside the Japanese embassy in Seoul, Mm. Takashima, which is um, another insurance highly, really. But overall, there is a constant back and forth between the Japanese government and South Korean government over how to resolve the history issue. The Japanese government considers the history issue to have been resolved under the 1965 Normalization Treaty through reparations. However, the South Korean government somehow disagrees and allows sort of challenges in its courts, whether it's allowing Japanese government, the Japanese companies to pay reparations over the treatment of Korean workers during the World War, Second World War, or the comfort woman issue, which is the big one. Ultimately, Japan-South Korea relations um, there is still there are still relations between the two countries because of North Korea. The danger of North Korea has sort of forced the two countries to cooperate. Otherwise, there would probably be far more arguments between the two nations over the two historical issues because of the existential threat of uh, South Korea vi- uh, vis-a-vis North Korea. South Korea has made the pragmatic decision to continue to cooperate with Japan on a security level. All right, well, how much of an integration do they have militarily? I mean, how, how much is even possible given Japan's stance, given Article 9? So there is the trade of security information, cooperation between defense ministries. And while this is more minor, there is the issue of the kidnapped, really, the Japanese who have been kidnapped. That's a key point for the Japanese state. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Of course. In the 1970s, North Korean agents abducted Japanese people off the shores of Japan. And while it's unclear whether these people are alive, the Japanese state has constantly kept up this attempt to, if not repatriate these people, allow their families in Japan to at least maybe meet with their relatives, mm-hmm. or even just to send back the remains of the Japanese people. What's interesting about this is that it's provided a bit of a sticking point, really, in the nuclear negotiations. Mm-hmm. The fact that Japan has sort of stuck to solving this issue has meant that North Korea sees this as a bit of a hindrance. Mm. And other countries also, uh, the United States, South Korea, do feel that Japan makes too much of an issue. But it is, after all, an understandable concern of the Japanese state, the abduction of its Mm. citizens. And not to mention the fact as well, is that um, within the LDP, there is a core faction that supports the repatriation of the abducted. And the families, too, they have a key sway over the LDP as well in drumming, not, not, not allowing the public to forget the fact that you know, the children are still overseas. All right. So on one hand, you have Japan beating the drum over this specifically, which interferes with attempts at North-South talks. On the other, you have the United States and South Korea. This is a sticking issue diplomatically. And yes, is yes. something that's getting in the way in, in the minds of, uh, of South Korea. I think the South Korean government would prefer to focus on the bigger issues, hmm. denuclearization, peace between South Korea and North Korea, and the reintegration of North Korea into the, this, on, this, on a state level onto the world stage. It's a tricky issue, really, with the Japanese government. Um, it can't be seen to be ignoring the abducted, hmm. but at the same time, it is, it's a key public issue, after all. All right. Despite this, you've said that North Korea is an issue that's bringing South Korea and Japan together. All right. 
and this is true even in recent years. I mean, like there's there's been let's actually let's 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 jump over briefly and take a look at that. How, how likely is reunification or any degree of chilling of hostilities? Let's start with this. Why don't you give me a one-word answer, and then you can say no, wait, okay. that's wrong and not subtle, and then you can qualify that. Sure. Um, at the moment, no, I think it's the one-word answer. I'd say, um, but I'd like to qualify that if you don't mind. Hmm. I think the issue with that really is the lack of any information from North Korea. Mm -hmm. How the North Korean state acts, I think, is one of the biggest puzzles of our generation. Mm -hmm. And while there have been sort of murmurings, the um, reconnection between North Korea and South Korea of a hotline, I think, was one of the big things recently. Mm -hmm. It's unclear, really, what the aims of the North Korean state are. To be honest, as it stands, the regime of Kim Jong-un has been very unpredictable recently, I think with the reaching out to the US and South Korea, and then suddenly just completely pushing that all to one side and going on again to launching nuclear missiles. The key issue is, going back to the point, regime change. Until there is a regime that is amenable to creating harmony um, on the peninsula, I don't think there will ever be a chance of reunification. Moreover, until North Korea, unfortunately, is such a dire state at the moment, its economy is not in good shape. So with China as a backer, it's on life support, but at the same time, it's sort of not dead yet, as it were. Um, so until even China decides to sort of cut off all aid and um, let's set North Korea free, which is, of course, very unlikely, hmm. um, North-South unification really is a pipe dream. And why? Uh, what exactly motivates China in, in maintaining the, uh, the Kim region? I think the big one really is strategic. It basically doesn't want a collapse of the North Korean regime and, well, firstly, allowing a stream of refugees into China and South Korea as well. And then that's the big question mark. If the Kim regime were to collapse, would there be a sort of US-South Korean domination over the peninsula? What would happen to the North Korean state, I think, is the big issue. Mm and the ultimate nightmare i think to the chinese state would be the us domination of the korean peninsula having that strategic foothold of the us mm. would be a, a complete catastrophe i think to the chinese state well despite that china seems to be playing both angles i mean there 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 seems to have been a greater degree of amiable relations between south korea and china uh, since uh, since the election of moon jae in or uh, or is that a an erroneous assessment so going back to really to my point about the unpredictable nature of the Kim regime, mm -hmm. I think China has realized that it's compared to Kim Jong-un, uh, sorry, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung, who are both far more uh, friendly towards China. I think Kim Jong-un and his cadre have, to be honest again, I'm going to go back to my point really about the um, lack of information really from inside North Korea. Mm -hmm. But it, what it seems to be is that the Kim Jong-un no longer wants to cooperate as much as with his father and grandfather really with China. And China has decided that um, in order to cut its losses, being more amenable to South Korea is a better form of damage control, really. All right. Well, things, uh, things are sort of up and down, though, with South Korea. Mm. What, what, can, what can we say about that, uh, South Korea-China um, relations? Of course. Um, so you, you mean like just current relations between China and South Korea? What, what sort of... Um... Well, yeah. Uh, so I think on a similar note, 
um, with China and Japan, really. China-South Korea relations are based primarily on trade. Mm. Neither can lose their core markets. To be honest, there's no bigger market than China. <laughs> mm. um, so I think that dominates relations between the two. Also, this is pure speculation, really, but I think South Korea engaging with China, there is uh, an element of quid pro quo there. I think um, China nudging North Korea is probably one of the hopes of South Korea. Finally, China-South Korea relations, this could also be a way of building up relations, and this is sort of Trump-specific, really, but while the US disengaged itself in the world stage, China saw this as a chance to re-engage with its neighbors, um, including South Korea. Of course, this has sort of collapsed a little bit since the beginning of the pandemic. Yes, pandemic has had that effect. But I think I've mentioned this before as well, but I think the effect of the pandemic will probably, it's probably dangerous to speculate, but within a, within a few years, what I'm trying to say is that the pandemic is a short-term obstacle. Mm-hmm. And in the long term, I think um, China and South Korea will probably benefit from good relations. Okay, I wanted to talk uh, briefly to, to jump back to, uh, to Japan. I wanted to talk okay. about the, uh, the influence because obviously Japan was the first economy in the region to really take off in a major way. Uh, how much of an impact mm. do you think the Japanese model had on uh, on South Korea and, on, uh, well, to, to, to a lesser degree, on China? So for South Korea, going back really about 50 years to the rule of Park Chung-hee, Park basically modeled the South Korean economy and Japan's, really. Mm. The idea of the, the, the chaibol, really, the family-run cooperation, dominance on heavy industry. Park, on a visit to Japan, once remarked that he was a Meiji youth. And what he meant was, is that he espoused the Meiji uh, theory of strong economy, strong army, in that if you build up your economy, you have a strong enough basis for a military. And that's Park. Post-Park, the model sort of evolved, really, into specifically a more uh, less heavy industry, more manufacturing-based, and finally soft culture. China, again, during Mao and Zhou, uh, Zhou Nai, the communist systems prevented any sort of application of Japan's economy, uh, Japanese economic system. Um, however, with Mao's demise, then Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping well, his main focus was Singapore, of course, the idea of Singaporeization. But he too sort of saw Japan as a model and the opening up of the West, um, similar to the Meiji, I suppose. It's less apparent, really, uh, the Chinese model because of the communistic style. But in general, I think the idea of a Japanese economy, Japanese style economy, you can see that more clearly in South Korea, basically, rather than China which is sort of more dominated still by the heavy industries. All right. Well, that's that's actually interesting because South Korea seems to be running into a lot of the same issues that mm. that Japan did, notably um, stagnation for one and to a much greater degree a uh, population decline. What attempts have the Japanese uh, governments over the course of the past uh, 20 years, what, what attempts have they made to sort of remedy these issues? Sort of stagnation, et cetera. Well, to go from the birth, the birth issue, really, I think is the big one, really. As you're probably aware, Japan's population is increasingly dominated by the elderly, the uh, overseas. And this is a big challenge to Japan's economy, really, because 
or firstly, there's the burden of pensions, the uh, burden of the young. And secondly, the young workforce is dying out increasingly because of the well, lack of fresh blood, really. So what the Japanese government is trying to do at the moment is basically to increase the birth rate. And the way it is doing that is to make the workplace more comfortable for women. And that is the big issue. It's There is a dearth in Japan of suitable um, nurseries, etc., for uh, Japanese women to feel comfortable about starting a family, basically. On top of that, the uh, I've touched on this before, but the Japanese work system means that making a family is basically an impossibility. Mm. Um, the fact that you are faced with a nine to a nine to nine really hour um, leaves little room really for the other enjoyments of life, and that is tied in with stagnation. The fact that the Japanese economy is failing to sort of revive itself. It means that ultimately it will continue to grow, but not, not at the rate it was during the golden years of the 60s and 70s. Mm. Going back to South Korea, true similar issues exist, but I think the main issue with South Korea really is demography, really. Mm. Um, it's going on a tangent, really, but sexism, I think, is an issue facing both countries. Mm. Um, South Korea in particular, I think. It's facing a growing issue with sexism within the workforce. And I think the, the South Korean government has also tried to sort of combat birth rate, but a bit more clumsily, really. Mm. I think there was a campaign recently about um, selling a family, but that was just very ham-fisted and quite sexist, frankly. Yes, Japan and South Korea, they're both facing growing populations, stagnating economies, and no way out, I think, basically. Innovation is lacking, as it were. All right. Well, that's actually, uh, from what I understand, that's also a, a big problem that China se seems to be trying to alleviate uh, at all costs, mm. a similar demographic issue. So so far, the results seem to be mixed when it comes to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, no, actually mixed is the wrong word. Uh, so far, the results seem to be uh, inexistent when it comes to the, the expansion of the one-child policy to the two-child policy, and then you know, now, I believe, the three-child policy. Do you anticipate that they'll manage to overcome this issue, or, or will they encounter the same problems as Japan and South Korea? So I think the difference between China, South Korea, and Japan, or specifically, sorry, with China, with South Korea and Japan, mm -hmm. is, to put it bluntly, it's, it's population, really, it's labor force. Mm -hmm. I think we, we can't underestimate, really, that China possesses what is basically an unlimited labor force. And since the era of Deng Xiaoping, the opening of the economy, industrial, mass industrialization, I think China has yet to really face the issues China and Japan face. It still has a relatively broad, uh, young workforce and an economy that is still growing at a, an amazing pace. Mm. Um, it will eventually face the problem of um, the growing population. Mm. And to be honest, the one-child policy probably hasn't helped that. But at the moment, it is still a surging power, and it's probably decades in the making, the issue of the growing population. Oh, all right. I just wanted to touch, but before we uh, before we wrap things up, I wanted to touch on the issue of culture, and specifically culture as soft power, because this seems to be something that is that Korea is really shining with right now. And from what I understand, a lot of it was modeled at least partially on Japan, particularly how things went for Japan following the 1980s, 1990s. What can you say about that? Right. Soft power is an interesting issue. So I think we can look at this in two ways. Japan, Japanese soft power in Asia and Japanese soft power internationally, uh, sorry, outside Asia. 
I've mentioned sort of the history issue before, and while that is, of course, a significant roadblock to the spreading of Japanese soft power among its Asian neighbors, at the same time, things like Japanese anime or J-pop, these things uh, providing a connecting point between the three nations, really. You can sort of see it, and I wouldn't call it mimicry, really, but there is definitely sort of similarities between the trends in sort of South Korean music, uh, Chinese popular music, and the two countries, of course, have their own styles of anime. I think Japan has had more success outside of Asia in spreading its soft power culturally in cartoons, um, and even in things like electronics, automobiles, etc., reliability of Japanese electronics. But I wouldn't say that the spreading of Japanese soft power is a focus of the state. So the Japanese state, um, I'm going off on a tangent here. By all means. Japanese diplomacy has always been dependent on commercialism and aid. And I think those are the central tenets of Japanese foreign policy. And the Japanese state sees no reason to sort of diverge from that really it sees it as a, a productive way of fostering relations with other nations uh, fostering relations with other nations with Japan. and specifically with engagement with the united nations japan has sort of successfully re-engaged with the world since the end of the second world war mm-hmm. so i think soft power is a happy side effect really of that and it's sort of acceptance if you will of japanese culture by the world south korean soft power and chinese soft power I think those two are probably more, those two states will actively promote that as a tool of re-engaging with the world. China especially because of the image problem, as it were, it faces Mm. of increasing militarization and seeming aggression. Uh, South Korea really just another tool really of international relations and raising it, raising its profile internationally, um, specifically in Asia. Ultimately, I feel to round off, um, quantifying soft power is difficult. I think you can't really tell really how much a nation has a nation has domination really with soft power. But I think all three nations, while they may not necessarily compete, all three, if not formally, informally. Um, engaging with the idea of soft power as power. Okay, well, I think I think that about uh, that about brings us to the end of what we can uh, discuss okay. today. Uh, in any case, uh, Leo Howard, thank you for uh, for joining us for the podcast. And uh, no problem at all. Thank you for having me. This is uh, Talkville Twenty One signing out. Thank you for listening to the Talkville Twenty One podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website. Talkville21.com. That's T O C Q U E V I L L E 21.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.